there's something about that's worth exploring and it's worth seeing that we don't always know the best way. And just because we've done something one way doesn't mean that it's the right way or the best way. And so I think it's really important to try to keep an open mind and to see what else is out there and you can learn something. And I guess the passion that I have for that learning is what fuels me and makes me excited to be at work on a Monday. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is a partner in the New York office of PASIC LLP. He represents commercial policyholders in complex insurance coverage matters with a focus on recovery strategies in cybercrime, COVID-19 and natural disasters, regulatory investigations and class actions, professional services, and technology disputes. He also acts as counsel for U.S. and foreign companies in both domestic and international arbitrations, and he is a member of numerous organizations, including the AAA National Roster of Arbitrators. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Peter Halperin. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, Seagal. Thanks for having me. I know you told me right before this recording that you listened to a few episodes, so you won't be surprised by our first question. Peter, what is your favorite thing that happened so far today? Today is a Monday after my kids were off of school for a week. So I would say getting them ready for school and handing them off. I think that was the best part. But I'm happy to be back at work. Got a lot to do. Got a great team. I'm always pretty pumped on a Monday. It's funny. I was having the same conversation with my friend where a lot of people say they have the Sunday scaries because they have to start a new week. And I'm like, most parents have the Friday scaries (laughs) because... We have a whole weekend where we have to be like super on and catering to many other humans throughout the weekend. So I love Mondays because it's where I get to recenter around me. So I'm with you. (laughs) Yes, this is the weekend, if you will. Yes, absolutely. Who would have thought? Awesome. I'm very excited to learn about your story. Let's get into it. What is your lawyer origin story? I come from a family of lawyers, so it goes back a few generations. How many generations? My grandmother actually was a lawyer. She graduated from Brooklyn Law School in 1937, which is wild. She had originally studied to be a teacher, and then the Depression hit, and they stopped hiring teachers. There was a hiring freeze. She wasn't really sure what she wanted to do, but my grandfather, her eventual husband, was in law school at the time, and she decided, you know what, I guess I'll go to law school. I would assume it's not common for women back then to have gone to law school. I don't think it was. She lived to 104, which is incredible. Passed away a few years ago, but she didn't really talk about it. It's interesting. I think that sometimes if you're a pioneer or a trailblazer, you got to have pretty thick skin and maybe you're just so focused on trying to make it all work that you don't ruminate in the accomplishment of it all. But yeah, you have to think that she was one of very few in her class. Incredible. And do you know what kind of law she practiced or what she did after law school? Yeah, she she practiced trust and estates and was practicing up until her 90s in the same area. It was actually very funny because I, I found that subject difficult. And I remember at the end of trust and estates in law school, I gave her my book to just have and look at and just thought she might get a kick out of it. And I remember she said to me, your book's wrong. 
I said, what's wrong with my book? She said, women get a lot of property in this. They get half. I don't think that's right. You may want to check these. So I, I assume the law has evolved and I'm glad that she wasn't too actively representing clients at that point, <laughs> but she was doing a lot of estates. So unfortunately they were friends of hers mostly at the end, but she was the executor of their estate. Wow. So this is your grandmother on your father's side or your mother's side? My father's side. And she and my grandfather actually had a firm together. He did tax law. They were Halpern and Halpern. And then my, my father was a state court judge here in New York in housing court for many years and has retired a few years ago. And my sister's also a lawyer. She's a prosecutor in Massachusetts. Quite a few just there. Absolutely. So you have judges, you have trusts and estates, you have tax, you have prosecution. So how did you decide to go into like complex insurance coverage matters? The other interesting aspect of it too, is that my grandfather and my grandmother were always in private practice. And my father saw that and he said, I, I don't want to do private practice. I want to work in the government. And I assume my son will, if he decides to do it or my daughter, if she decides to do it, they'll go into the public sector in some way. But I've always been intellectually curious. I've always been eager to learn things. I've always wanted to help. I've always wanted to mentor and teach. And all of that really culminated in this practice because what we're doing is we're taking very complicated business procedures and policies, and we're taking very complex contracts, very complex instruments trying to distill all of those things and ultimately help our clients recover insurance for whatever calamity or disaster has just befallen. So it's a lot of thinking. And what's nice about it in the space that we practice is you're dealing with sophisticated companies and sophisticated issues, but across many industries. So if you take my morning already, right, I might be looking at something involving insurance coverage for something on Broadway in one minute. And then the next, it's a complex property claim where a client, all of a sudden, national company couldn't function due to the pandemic. And then at the same time, looking at something in an arbitration involving workers' compensation issues, right? And then at the same time, looking at directors and officers insurance and what's happening in the financial markets. I just looked at a crypto insurance policy last week. So it's always varying. And I also find that the practice has become more and more satisfying for me individually. One, working at a boutique firm, I think there's just, you have, at least you feel like you have so much more control over your time and your day, where you focus your energy and we're growing. And so that's a really exciting, fun, entrepreneurial thing. And it also gives me the time to satisfy that like mentoring and teaching part where I can take time out with working with my colleagues at whatever level they're at to help them grow in, in their careers and then never a dull day. And I guess the last part that's really satisfying to me is also just now I'm at the point where I can give the high level strategic advice I most enjoy giving. So a client can come to me and say, okay, we're meeting with our board in an hour. Here's the scenario. Walk us through how you would handle this and what we should expect. And that's really where I feel like I'm really adding a tremendous amount of value for a client. Absolutely. So the first thing that you said was that you have always been very intellectually curious. Where do you think that comes from? Definitely from my parents, but I, I think my mother in particular who was not a lawyer, but she was always interested in the world and how the world worked. And I 
I made fun of her for when I was a kid, but she was, I, in my head, she's watching a movie involving like a rock or a movie in a, a bazaar with the sand kicking up, you know, in Afghanistan or something. And she was always reading and, and, and interested in those things. And I love to travel and I love to experience food and culture. And I, I give her a lot of credit for that. At the same time though, my dad I can't rule him out here either. And that he's retired now, but he's taking courses at the community college in different aspects of history that he feels like he needs to go back and read about again. And so it definitely comes from both sides. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that kind of wanting to know the world and understand various aspects seems to really tie into this idea of practicing in an area that has many industries. So you keep that essence going. Yeah. And I also think it helps me to be practical because I feel like I, I can really put myself in the shoes of the other side. I don't get angry and emotional about legal arguments. I'm like, okay, let me put myself in their shoes, right? What would I say if I were them? Or how would I handle this if I were them? And I think that's also helped me because it's allowed me to resolve very complex claims, right? Because we can understand where they're coming from and that helps us to move the needle toward resolution. Yeah, I like this idea of understanding where people come from in order to facilitate not only wonderful resolutions and potentially quick resolutions for your clients, but also to maintain a sense of civility between you and the other side. Yeah, you can't take these things personally. There are lawyers who I think enjoy the power and they like being able to make up small procedural disputes just to either churn the file or to otherwise make themselves feel good. But I try to out of that and I try to, you need extensions, we'll give you extensions and assume the best from my adversaries, try to treat them like human beings. And sometimes I think junior lawyers who work with me for the first time will be surprised when I have a like very nice phone call with a lawyer for the other side, where we're just talking about our families or our kids or travel or something, because we're human beings, right? And at the end of the day, they represent a client in the same way that I represent a client and we need to figure out a way forward. It's the reminder that they're just doing their job just as you are doing your job. And it's okay to still be civil with each other in the process. Definitely. Wonderful. I love that. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about was this idea of arbitration, because I know that you're very involved and you counsel a lot of U.S. and foreign companies. You're a member of a lot of arbitration organizations. Why is arbitration so important to you as it relates to your work? Is it because a lot of these contracts that you're working with have arbitration clauses or what is it about arbitration specifically? Yeah. And I'd step back even further and just say that any kind of alternative dispute resolution mechanism, and I teach international arbitration at Cardozo. I coach the Moot international arbitration team. I'm on a lot of panels to sit as an arbitrator and I do act as counsel and all of those things are true. But what's interesting is I would say more than that, though, I am in mediation more often because every case that we have ends up being resolved in some way, either through mediation with the mediator, or I'm able to negotiate directly with my adversary and get it done ourselves. So I think my passion for alternative dispute resolution is broader than just arbitration. And in part because of my frustration with litigation, where you see those kinds of nonsense things happening, or even a conference, right? understand why the courts have these conferences. They want to keep the parties on track. But in a sophisticated dispute, if lawyers are getting along and things are moving forward, you don't always need that. And when you then go to court, it could be a 15 minutes in court. But 
you've got to prepare for that for hours and maybe both sides have to travel and we've got a couple of lawyers and they've got a couple of lawyers. We need to talk to the client about it before and after. And so once you start doing the math on all that, it becomes an incredibly expensive thing for a very short period of time, right? Whereas in an arbitration or a proceeding that you can more customize, you don't have to do all that. You don't necessarily need to have conferences unless you need to have the conferences. And so it puts the onus on the parties to act. And again, that is problematic, right? Because if you have a difference in strength or bargaining power or whatnot or resources, then you need those things. And that's where I understand it. But for us, in, in some of our disputes, we're often better served out of arbitration is one mechanism, but mediation is really the one that probably makes the most sense because in a lot of the disputes, the question is complicated and there's risk on both sides. And the mediation pool that we can draw from, the mediators that we can draw from are insurance experts. And so they understand the policies, they understand the nuances, they understand the fact patterns. Whereas when you're going to court, in a, as I said, I, there's a judge in my family, they're generalists, right? They're not specialists in the area. And so they constantly have to learn a new area but it's hard. The dockets yeah. that they have, the amount of work that they have, the amount of disputes that they see. And oftentimes they're the ones who say, go settle this, right? Go out in the hole, go figure this out yourselves. And taking up that charge, I see these alternatives as a good way of doing it. I love that. I love this idea that arbitration and mediation are also helpful, not just because it can save time and it can create more efficiency, but it also provides both parties an expert who understands the issues versus a generalist judge who might take more time or might not understand things or could complicate things and how valuable that can be. I think that's really fascinating and a really important point when considering arbitration and mediation or any ADR of any sort. Yeah. With arbitration, I didn't know anything about it until I was in law school. I was in my third year, I guess, and I learned about this international arbitration competition which is held every year in Vienna. I mentioned I coached the team for Cardozo, but I learned about this and I got on the team and I went to Vienna and I did a bunch of related independent study with the professor and I was, I was hooked. I really loved, and this is international arbitration, so I would also differentiate between domestic and international, but I just, I fell in love. And some of it is that I, you know, as I said, I love traveling. I love learning about different cultures and what was so interesting about this competition is, and I don't remember the stats then, but now you have 400 teams from 90 countries. Wow. And you need the four days of mooting and then elimination rounds. But for the first four days of the general rounds, to have 400 teams compete four times each and needing three arbitrators per round, you can see how there's probably more than a thousand arbitrators coaches, by the time you add all those people together, some of the teams are, are large, especially from Germany, where they come by train. So all of a sudden you're looking at four or 5,000 people descending and being a part of this community and really enjoyed that aspect of it. And the fact that there are no rules, like, yes, there are institutional rules, but even then arbitrators have pretty wide discretion. And the type of arbitration that we do in insurance is ad hoc. So there's no institution typically. So you're doing everything with no rules. And so there's a lot of opportunities to really create a process that works for the parties or to customize things so that you can, as you said, be more efficient or 
what have you. But it, it really sets things up nicely for someone who's willing to jump in and, and try to really gear the process toward that. And then, of course, there's the obvious that if it's international, you have to travel places, you get to see the world. All of that really ignited passions within me. And when I got to my first firm where I was for a long time, they weren't an international arbitration firm, they were an insurance firm. But if we get any of this stuff in the door, like I'm the guy, I want to be on it. I want to make sure that it happens. And I credit people for listening to me and doing that. And I got opportunities and I was very persistent about it. And I pushed and each opportunity led to more. And then you get to a certain point where they're like, well, Peter's our in-house expert. He knows how to do this. Let's keep going to Peter. So what's a piece of advice that you would give to our listeners who are looking to take the same approach? One of the pieces of advice that I've given to my students, both at Cardozo and within this program, and then other people have reached out to me about this field, is to say that there are many, many different paths. And sometimes the path to take is just one where you bring the opportunity to you and you just say, okay, I'm at a law firm that doesn't specialize in arbitration, but there's so much arbitration going around these days. Every law firm does some. So try to position yourself as the go-to person there to do it. And maybe that means going on an arbitration that you can't bill for and you have to sit and observe, you know, as like the 10th chair, or maybe you're holding the bags for people when you're first starting, but it's just, it's that level of commitment to, you get to the point where you lead the arc. Yes, absolutely. That's great advice. I wanted to touch upon also this idea of being able to work on international arbitration and in many ways, you get to encounter various different cultures and how they arbitrate. Is there an example that you could give me of either a creative solution or an argument or something that happened in an international arbitration that was like, wow, that's not something I encountered before. And due to the fact that I have so much exposure to all of these different cultures and backgrounds, I was able to gain that insight. The first time I did one, and this is US to UK, so still common law, similar backgrounds. I was really struck by the fact that there is a voluntary production of documents where you focus on the documents upon which you intend to rely. And they just have a totally different notion when it comes to document production. There's no depositions. It's all witness statements. And so it's just things are done very differently. But seeing that, I think there was a lot to take back in terms of how could we do things better and really trying to focus on learning in those settings. I think where international arbitration gets really interesting is when you're combining civil and common law. I wrote a, a law review article about this many years ago in terms of ethics, but this is really the area where there's the greatest clash, right? Because in the US, we're used to reading people's personal emails and learning about their lurid affairs and all these terrible things that are going on and hearing them making jokes and all that's all for you to review and you can click non-responsive, but you still have to see it versus in a place like France, where taking documents like that could be a violation of privacy laws and could be criminal. So you have these weird situations that arise where they call it the inequality of arms problem, where, you know, if the U S party has to produce all this stuff, but the French party is not allowed to legally then how do you manage a dispute where you have these parties from different places? I haven't lately, but I used to write more law review pieces focused on some of these issues. And one of the biggest debates was, do you need a global ethical code that everyone follows and that's how you solve the problem? Or 
the opposite end, which is no arbitration is intended to be customized for each proceeding. So maybe you take it on a case by case basis. I'm probably in the latter camp. I think it's a really interesting debate and it's the kind of thing that comes up in this space. In a situation where you can customize or you do customize a lot in these cases, how long generally do these customizable conversations happen between two parties? Are the two parties or three parties, whatever the amount of parties that are coming together, are you having like a facilitated conversation? Are there negotiations around the customization of it? Or are these usually built into the agreements beforehand? So there is some custom and practice where like mm -hmm. you've done it before, so you know. But I would say the really pivotal moment in all arbitrations is at the outset when you're getting to the organizational meeting or the out product of that procedural order number one, it's getting to that point, right? Where here's where you say, okay, like these are the evidentiary rules that I think we should use. And the other side says, no, we don't agree to that. And then the arbitrators have to issue a ruling in their discretion. For the most part though, you do try to work those things out. But I will tell you again, based on those experiences, we do that all the time. I had a case where we were supposed to litigate. There was no arbitration clause, no mediation clause, but we went to the other side with the proposal, which is let's mediate. And if we can't agree within a certain amount of time, then we will use the neutral as an arbitrator or we'll use someone else as an arbitrator, but trying to come up with different ways to facilitate things or trying to work on phased proceedings. Maybe we do this first phase and then we do that. But I, I think a cooperative approach to case management is always best, but I, I think it's really incumbent upon counsel to try to come up with these ideas because the court is not necessarily going to push you there, although they may, and you really need the other side to agree. Right. I can say now as a neutral, so putting on my hat as an arbitrator, I can say now sitting on the other side of the table that especially on these procedural matters, it's very delicate where the parties don't agree because you have so much discretion. You can basically do whatever you want, but you are trying to focus on process. It's not just a good outcome, but a good process. And so when you're focused on process, consensus is really important. Yeah. And what are some ways from the arbitrator's seat, what are some ways in which you can facilitate a smooth process between both parties? Listening. Number one, as much as I'm talking, I, I promise I, I enjoy listening. I think it's really important to listen and to hear what the parties say and what the issues are. And I think once you have a really good understanding of what the issues are and what's motivating these issues in this way or this presentation of issues in this way, then you can go back to the parties with a proposal and say, here's what I'm thinking. Let me know your comment. And again, give them another opportunity to participate. I had a, an interesting situation in the middle of the pandemic. I was an arbitrator on a case and we were going to have a hearing, but of course it was September or August, 2020. And one party wanted to proceed and the other party wanted to basically wait out the pandemic. Now, now that sounds funny, but at the time, if you remember, people were saying, oh, this will be over by Easter or this will be over by Memorial Day, or maybe thinking we were at beta. Maybe it was like beta is not that bad goes away during the summer. Maybe this will be over in September or so. Yeah. And that was great. We had these parties that were coming to us and saying, we don't think we can have a good hearing if it's not in person. And another party saying, well, that may be true, but we think we can have a good enough hearing. And if we don't proceed now, who knows when we'll proceed? And e even almost suggesting like some of the people here might be dead. We should probably do this sooner rather than later. And so 
we took that under advisement and it was really interesting in deliberations because there really wasn't that much to go on at that point. I think there was a single ruling from the Northern District of Illinois at that point on remote hearings saying it was okay. Right. But there wasn't a more established body of law than that. And so, you know, the compromise that we presented to the parties was, okay, we're going to delay the hearing by a month. And if COVID is not over, then we're going to proceed virtually. How's that sound? And again, you bring it back to the parties and you give them an opportunity to comment. Now, I think the dirty little secret is that the parties don't really want to fight you once you come up with the compromise, but the compromise was clearly thought through. We tried to address the concerns of both sides, and I think they appreciated that. Really, it's it's trying to be collaborative. I just settled the case where a lawyer for the other side is like, there's no way we're going to settle this with you. I'm like, let's see. And we went through the process and we got to a number. And at the end, she said, you were right. I was surprised, but you were right. And I think, again, the more you do this, the more you see kind of the life cycle and the easier it is to say, okay, we can cut through this and go straight to step two because I, I see where this is going. I I see kind of this theme emerging in our conversation. Obviously, the experience is so important, right? But also you have a gift in being able to communicate with people in a way that keeps them open to your perspective, but also I think because you show them that you're very open to their perspective and where they're coming from. And I feel like this is your superpower. Well, I I appreciate that. I didn't yeah. know I had a superpower. You do. And it came from your lawyer origin story of being intellectually curious about the world and how the world works and how other people do things. I just love that. I think it's just all coming together. And the fascinating thing is like, I love to eat, right? And, and I always say to people that there's nothing like traveling to a place and eating the food that you love, no matter how good the food is in New York and how close it is, but being in that place, in that climate with the ingredient freshly picked or what have you from the nearby area prepared the way that it's always been prepared. There's really something special about that. And then when you go back and you eat the same version in New York and you're like, this is close, but it's not the same. There's something missing. We're eating poke bowls in the middle of winter, right? And we're like, oh, something seems off here. There's something about that's worth exploring and it's worth seeing that, you know, we don't always know the best way. And just because we've done something one way doesn't mean that it's the right way or the best. Way. And so I think it's really important to try to keep an open mind and to see what else is out there and you can learn something. And I guess the passion that I have for that learning is part of what fuels me and makes me excited to be at work on a Monday. 100%. So on that note, I'd love to get into some of our rapid fire questions before we wrap up. What does leadership in law mean to you? You made me have to pause, which is rare. So that, that credit to you. I, I, I think it's trying to leave the field in a better place than it was when you found it. And how do you think you're doing that? First of all, I'm trying to avoid all of the worst parts of the law when I join. I think, thankfully, now we don't have the screamers and the yellers and somewhat abusive personalities that were there before. I try to give people positive feedback. I try to give them work that they want to do. And I just try to keep it as fun of an atmosphere as you can, because there's so much stress and there's so many hard things that we should enjoy. And if that means finding a cool lunch spot or grabbing coffee as a group or something like that on a little field trip, now, I think all of those things fuel the practice and, and hopefully leave it better for 
the next generation and then whatever I'm doing wrong, hopefully they'll do better uh, as, as they have their next generation. What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? I think that it's hard. I get a lot of very funny comments from usually the lawyers who are sending things to me who are in different fields who are like, oh, this insurance stuff. I couldn't do what you do. Like, take a look at this. Like throwing their hands up exasperated. It's hard. It's definitely hard. And I think the only thing that makes it easier is time and again, experience. You know, when you've looked at thousands and thousands of policies, then you know where to look and you know what to focus on and that makes it easier to really help someone work through their problem. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? I think it's too focused on the big firm path. And I think that a lot of lawyers would be happier if they didn't feel the pressure of having to go down that path. And when I talk to law students, I think they feel that it's almost a singular focus from the law schools that they go to the big firms. And I understand why, which is that's where the money is and you want donations and you want to tell people that you've got people at the big firms and it's very prestigious and all that. But I, I think for quality of life, not everyone is meant to be in those firms and not everyone there is happy either, right? I think it's really trying to fix the career services process so that it can better serve students and help them find better placements as opposed to just the most lucrative. And at the same time, I think it would be great for kind of smaller and mid-sized practices to be able to integrate themselves into that process so that they can attract the lawyers who want to be there in the first place. And that mismatch right now, I think having gone from a larger firm to a smaller firm, I really see it playing out. We do hiring and I see resumes and I have a sense. I love that answer. I love it on so many levels. One, there needs to be an equal emphasis on the various paths that a lawyer can take. Two, there needs to be more transparency about what an everyday life looks like at various pathways, right? So what does that quality of life look like? And Three, the people that are, I guess, receiving the law students being more integrated so that they can provide that information and they can provide those options is a huge piece of how to implement it. I also think law school is too short. I mean, I don't advocate for extending it, but I just think that your first year is all fixed courses. And if you take all of the just the bar prep type courses, you're pretty much spoken for. And so I think that you don't get enough exposure to all the different areas and aspects of law. And I will tell you as a, as a professor, when I go to Vienna with my students and they, like me, get the bug and they say, I love this. I want to do this. I wish I had known about this. It's a constant refrain. It's just that by the time they're really figuring out what they love about the law, they're in their third year or they're at the end of their third year. And going back to this issue about a singular focus on large firms, the challenge is, is that everything they're doing in 1L is focused on getting that summer job at that big firm. And so I just don't think they have enough opportunities to explore. So maybe law school is the right length of time, but there needs to be more of a concerted effort to allow, maybe there's like a winter semester where they could take a bunch of courses or something they could do of like a potpourri survey of the law type yeah. thing where they could get exposed to all the different areas. But I, I think that's, that's just such a huge 
problem because I meet too many lawyers who are like, now I'm an environmental lawyer. If I had known about this when I was in law school, I wouldn't have spent 10 years in IP or something like that. And so I, I encourage people to try, you know, different things than they should. But I, I do wish that there was more of a survey of the law that they could be exposed to and really see what's out there. Kind of like what we do with doctors, right? Like they have some sort of clinical rotation, right? Where they go and they try out and they work with various parts of medicine and then they have an idea of what they like or what they don't like. So it's not like it's reinventing the wheel, right? There are other professions right now that are doing that that we could be modeling from. Sure. What is a piece of practical advice you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law. I'm going to quote my wife because I don't know where she got it, but she gets the credit. She always talks about the three Ps, patience, passion, and persistence. And again, I don't, I, she gets the credit. I don't know where they originated, but she's always hammering it home. And I think that sometimes people have two of three, but not all three. And they wonder why things aren't breaking their way. And I, I think you need them all. The passion is obvious, right? That's what drives you. That's what drives me. And lots of people have passion, but then it's okay persistence. Can you grind away? And I think that's one of the hardest things for this generation. I'm going to sound like an old man. People are used to like short video clips and everyone wants to disrupt things and they're looking for life hacks and this and that. And I feel like the hack is work. It's volunteering on stuff that maybe doesn't necessarily have an immediate payoff. Just a lot of visibility, a lot of doors being slammed in your face and being like, that's okay. You just have to keep pushing. So that persistence is really important. And then the related point of the patient, you have to be willing to wait for it. So you've got you've to be excited about it. You've got to be willing to wait for it. And you've got to be willing to grind away to get to your opportunities. And I think so, sometimes you just see one of those fall off, usually persistence slash patience, where people are just like, but I've been doing it for a year and it's not working for me. And I'm like, I think it took me 10 to get to where I want it to be. So you really have to be willing to do that and know that the slow burn sometimes is the best way. What do you do for self-care? Not enough, but uh, uh, travel for sure. I love my family. My kids are, are so great. We have so much fun together. I really try to shut it down on the weekend and just be totally focused on them, which is exhausting. My wife and I try to go out twice a week. So we try for every Thursday and every Saturday, and sometimes it doesn't work, but we just try to do that. So it's, it's really focusing on all these other things. You know, I want to have the best life that I can at work, but my severed mind, if you've seen that show, the home life being really good and grounding. And I think that's important. I also would say to people that, yes, I've said you got to persist, 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 and that's true, but. Here and there, you have to take care of yourself and, and take breaks too. And if you've been working really hard and you need a break, give yourself that break and find whatever it is that you like to do. I mean, when I was in law school, I worked out pretty much every day, went to yoga multiple times a week. I still think that's a great way to release. If I can get to yoga, I try to do that as well. That's awesome. I love yoga too. It's a huge part of my mental health is being able to make it to that. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show. If anyone wanted to reach out to you, learn more about what you do, connect with you, what is the best way they can do that? Yeah, I'm hiding in plain sight on the internet. So uh, you, can, <laughs> you can find me on my firm website or Passage LLP. That's probably a good way to go. But I'm on LinkedIn. And uh, I would just say, if you do want to connect with me on LinkedIn, please just say like, why? 
especially because mine is international, right? So, you know, I get people from all over the world reaching out to me and I used to just say yes to everybody. And then I get like weird spammy stuff. So I've tried to crack down. So the short answer is just say, hey, liked what you said on the podcast. I would love to connect just so I know where you're coming from. But um, this was really fun and really interesting. I appreciated the opportunity to dig within myself and think about a lot of things. You made, you made me really do some hard thinking, so I appreciate it. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers Who Lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.